just as a, sort of a reminder of what we've been looking at in this series of lessons, uh, yesterday we looked at a couple passages in Ezekiel that help us understand what our mission and our purpose is as Christians today. There's a lot of prophecies in the Old Covenant about what New Testament Christianity would look like. And so we've been looking at some of those. And then today we're looking at things that are unique to the New Covenant that give us motivation and strength to be the people that God has said that we would be. Uh, In the previous lesson, we started by looking at several Old Testament passages that talk about how, like in Deuteronomy 30, the people of the New Covenant will uh, will love God with all of their heart. So we, we looked at that. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, God's laws would be written on the hearts of the New Covenant people. We've talked about that. And then Ezekiel 36, there's this promise that God is going to do this heart transplant where he's going to take the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh so that we will be careful to do all the things that God has asked. And... Uh, one of the marks of somebody who has the Spirit of God is if they are somebody who's carefully doing everything that God has asked them to do. So we've seen those ideas from an Old Testament sort of picture, but today we're dedicating these lessons to looking at what is unique about the New Covenant that would finally make people want to serve God with everything that they have. Uh, in the first lesson today, we've, we looked at Jesus' suffering on the cross, that there's, there's no other religion Uh, You don't see this kind of suffering in the Old Testament with God where God becomes flesh and then dwells among us and and suffers uh, in unspeakable ways. Now, in this lesson, we're going to talk about how God's blessings strengthen us. Now, the word blessing is one of those words that, well, what what exactly do we mean by that? What blessings are we talking about? We'll dial that down as we go through this lesson. But the blessings that God has given us in the New Covenant far outshine the ones that he gave in the Old Covenant, and the Old Covenant blessings were were glorious. But we've been given greater resources than the people of the Old Covenant did, and so we'll talk about that as we go through this. But let me start this lesson by asking this question for us to consider. Who do you talk to more than anybody else? You might be thinking about your spouse. Uh, You might be thinking about your prayer life and how much you talk to God. I would suggest that the person that you talk to more than anybody else is yourself. When you're getting ready in the morning to do whatever you're going to do, when you're driving, uh, when you're eating all by yourself, whatever, whatever situation you're in, if you're by yourself, and even when you're with other people, you still have this conversation going within your mind about how you're processing everything that's happening. So let me ask you this question. How do you view yourself? Uh, psychologists today would use words like uh, phrases like self-image or self-esteem. How do you think about yourself? Now, there's some people that think really, really highly of themselves, but I, in my experience in working with people and in my own life, my guess is that more people struggle with a really low view of themselves than a really high view of themselves. Uh, a lot of the times saying negative things about himself or herself, about the things that they're doing, about the things that, are, that they're saying. Um, we all have this, this need to be validated and to be accepted and to be affirmed. And what we're going to look at in this lesson is God's validation of us. And we're going to work our way to seeing that. <clears throat> but the reason why this is important 
is because even in human relationships, whenever you've been affirmed or accepted by somebody, it gives you strength and encouragement to keep doing that thing that you were just doing that got you that praise. Uh, and so when we, when we think about how we look at ourselves, we have to learn to look at ourselves the way that God sees us. And we're going to see some of that stuff in Ephesians, but I want to start with John chapter 12. Because I want to start this lesson by, by talking about some false ways that we seek affirmation and validation. In other words, what are some of the wrong ways or the fleshly ways or the worldly ways that we look for this sense of validation that, by the way, God created us to have? So what are some wrong ways that we seek to fill this good desire that we have? Uh, the first passage that we're going to look at is in John chapter 12, and I'm going to suggest that the first way that we can seek affirmation in the wrong way is by seeking the glory that comes from man. Now, the gospel of John, is, you could characterize it as the gospel of unsaved believers. There's people all throughout the gospel of John that believe, but they're not saved. For example, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus at night, and what's one of the first things he says to Jesus? He says, teacher, we know that you're a teacher come from God. We know this. Now, is he just complimenting Jesus, or is that something that the, the, the leaders of Israel, in one way or another, had sort of realized? Ironically, John 3.16 is one of the verses people will use to say that all you have to do is mentally assent. Throughout the Gospel of John, there's people that mentally assent, but they're lost. Look at one of those examples in John chapter 12, verses 42 to 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. All right, you see that these leaders believed in Jesus. They believed. Are they saved? Not in this text. Well, what was it that they were afraid of? They were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. What, what's the synagogue? It, it's like a Jewish church. Uh, they met on Saturdays. It was their sense of community. Uh, if you were kicked out of the synagogue, that meant that the people you did business with no longer would do business with you. It was a financial hardship. If you got kicked out of the synagogue, the people that you were closest friends with would distance themselves from you. So it would bring lots of different kinds of suffering into their life. And so because of this fear, and they needed to be effect, affirmed and accepted by these people that they knew, it caused them to not believe in Jesus openly like they needed to. Now, the thing that this text says is that they loved the glory that comes from man more than glory that God would give them. What does it mean to love the glory that comes from man? I think this means that I can only believe about myself the things that you tell me. I can't believe that I'm beautiful until you tell me that I'm beautiful. I can't believe that I'm smart until somebody tells me that I'm smart. I can't believe that I'm desirable until some guy or girl desires me in my life and I end up maybe getting a spouse one day. Uh, the glory that comes from man, we can sometimes try to tell people the good deeds that we do or try to impress them with our intelligence or impress them with our wealth or whatever, and we're looking for a pat on the back from people. Um, the Bible teaches that this is a snare. Proverbs 29, verse 25, the fear of man or this overestimation of what they think about you. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
I'd suggest that if this is how you're trying to feel good about yourself, does this work for some people sometimes? Yeah. If you're really successful in your career and everybody thinks you're awesome, everybody thinks your car is impressive and your house is impressive or your intelligence is impressive and people are constantly saying that to you, there's a degree to which that's sort of fulfilling. But let me suggest that it's extremely fragile to try to get affirmation in that way. You you remember um, Haman in the book of Esther? Everybody's bowing down before Haman. He's the second guy in command now and there's one person... That won't bow down to him, Mordecai. And Haman just loses sleep over that and he's so upset about it. If I'm somebody who's seeking the glory that comes from man, I could have all the praise in the world except for one person and that one complaint or that one criticism that they gave me is going to shatter me. We are not easily pleased with the praise of men. So that doesn't work. So there's another approach that some people use to try to feel affirmed or validated and that's the failure of man. Go over to Luke 18. This is one of the most important parables in the Bible to understanding the Pharisees. Uh, I remember when I was in elementary school, uh, seeing bullies on the playground and how they would physically beat people up. When people get older and more mature, they don't necessarily physically beat people up, but they do it in their mind and the the way that they talk about people. Look at Luke chapter 18 and see an example of this in verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and by the way, in the context, the Pharisees had actually been doing all of those things. Uh, where did I leave off? Or even like this tax collector, verse 12. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Can you imagine this scene? It's a parable, but you can imagine this happening. Two guys go up to the temple, polar opposite kinds of people by society standards. One of them is a tax collector. He's gross and he's disgusting. And he's a traitor. And then the other one is a Pharisee, and everybody thinks he's a holy, righteous, pious kind of man. And when this uh, Pharisee is praying, he's just talking about how great he is. Now, I have a question about this Pharisee. Does he have high self-esteem or low self-esteem? He's got high self-esteem, which, by the way, psychologists today would tell you you need to have high self-esteem. This guy's got really high self-esteem. Why does he think so highly of himself in this text? The reason is because he can find fault with other people. So he's kind of climbed up this mental ladder by finding problems with everybody else around him. You want to know a really great way to feel good about yourself and feel validated is just to have a really critical eye and look for faults in everybody around you. And you'll feel pretty good about yourself. How do we do this? Do you want to know why the book of Proverbs talks about gossip being like a, like a dainty morsel, like a little like really desirable uh, piece of dessert that goes into your stomach? 
is because in the moment, gossip is so enjoyable because it makes you feel better than other people that you're talking about. Do you rejoice to find problems with other people in that way? Let me suggest a couple problems with this approach to being validated. The first problem, like, like the other approach, is that this is extremely fragile. You might feel pretty good about yourself, like a Pharisee would, by finding problems with other people. But imagine that this Pharisee is going up to the temple to pray, and rather than a tax collector coming up with him, it's another Pharisee who happens to be more Pharisaical. The, the tables got switched there. Now this guy that thought really highly of himself suddenly is feeling pretty insecure. If you're trying to feel good about yourself based on the failures of other people, what kind of people do you love being around? People that you've figured out in one way or another that you're better than. What kind of people do you hate to be around? People that you feel like outshine you in one way or another. And so whenever you start to seclude yourself, you become like Saul who had his eye on David because he was jealous of David and he started to try to hurt him in different kinds of ways. We start to hurt people's reputation that we feel inferior to. and all. You, you see how terrible this approach gets. Maybe the biggest problem with this approach is how unloving it is. Uh, Romans 12.15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I can't obey this command if this is my approach to feeling good about myself. Because every time somebody else is rejoicing, I'm inwardly weeping. And every time somebody else is weeping, I'm inwardly rejoicing. Um, there's a third approach. Maybe somebody gets to a point where they say, okay, the glory of man, that's not really going to work because one criticism destroys it anyways. That approach is not strong. The failure of man, I just at the end of the day, I end up feeling like a jerk, so I feel terrible anyways. So then there's the third approach. It's just to affirm yourself. I don't care about the success that I have. I don't care about the failures of other people. I'm just going to say really good things about myself. Now, that, that's a common thing that people are saying today. And let me suggest that this won't work either. Let's say that uh, somebody was to record all the times you were frustrated at other people. So if, if you could make a list of all the times you've been mad at other people and the reason for it, you could say, okay, this person lied to me. This person was angry with me and it wasn't justified. This person cut me off on the road. And you get, come up with a list of all the things you've been mad at about other people. And then you take that same list and you're judged by that list. How are you doing? You see, we don't even live up to, to our own standards. And so we can't just give ourselves a pep talk all the time and feel great about ourselves. We ultimately, every one of us, need affirmation from outside ourselves. So how do we get it? Go to the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to, uh, this is one of the, this sermon came out of something that I, I do with people in one-on-one -on -one studies. Uh, I, I used to tell people to get a highlighter or a pencil and underline all the things that we're about to look at in the book of Ephesians. And to write them down in your mirror, make a little like, poster thing in your house for it and meditate on the things that we're about to think about. We'll see that as we go through this. But if I was to ask you, what is God's opinion of you? What would your honest answer be to that? I think a lot of Christians have this idea that God is just ready, his arm is like cocked and it's, he's ready to slap you across the head and he's waiting for you to make a mistake. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. And by the way, let me say, 
that God's wrath and his anger is a real thing. Uh, but we're looking at the other side of this right now. Uh, so look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul begins this letter by saying that we are supposed to be people who bless God. Now, what does it mean to bless somebody? It means to speak good words about somebody. It means to validate or affirm somebody. Well, what's the reason that we do this in this text? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has done what? Blessed us. He's spoken blessings into our life. Now, when God speaks in the Bible, what happens? In Genesis chapter 1, He wants light to be there and there's light. He wants the land to be there and there's land. He wants animals to be there and the ostrich is there. He, his words make things happen. A lot of people debate about Genesis chapter 1 about how old the earth is. Uh, and maybe we lose some of the original meaning of Genesis chapter 1 when we get into 21st century debates. One of the ideas of Genesis chapter 1, I think, to the original audience was this. Kings in the ancient world could say, build a garden and it would get built. Execute this person and his words would make it happen. In Genesis chapter 1, God is being pictured as the cosmic king. He says something and it happens. His words are powerful. So here, this book is opening up by saying that God has spoken blessings into our life. His words are powerful. They make things happen. So, what are these blessings? Now, we're, we're going to run through these real quick. But you notice before we look at these in verse 3, that these blessings are for those who are in Christ. 27 times in Ephesians, you see the phrase, in Christ, or in Him, or in the Beloved. How do you get in Christ? You have to be baptized into Christ. So everything we're about to look at, if you've not been baptized into Christ, these things do not apply to you. But they can if you'll get, commit your life to the Lord. All right. This is where I tell somebody to get out a highlighter or a pen or whatever and like underline or highlight these things in the Bible. Here are the things that God has said about us. In chapter 1, verse 1, you are a saint. Uh, he opens up the letter by saying to the saints who are in Ephesus. You might see this and go, okay, uh, this is kind of funny. Uh, some Christians will say, I'm no saint, to just say that I'm not like a great person sort of thing. Some Bibles begin by saying the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians. As if saint is sort of like a different class of Christian. But this letter begins by saying, in Christ you are all saints. You've been set apart for the Lord's purposes. So you're, you're a saint. Notice the second one. You are chosen. Uh, this has been one of those words and concepts that's been debated a lot. You, you're, you're, uh, you're chosen. All right. Well, what kind of people does God choose? He chooses those who are in Christ. All right. So we got that figured out. Uh, but just think about this, the, special, the specialness, if that's even a word, how special it is being chosen. Were you ever the kind of person that was chosen for anything? I remember when I was in seventh grade, I wasn't the worst math student and I wasn't the best one. But towards the end of the year, the teacher had said, he, she had called up different students and said that you guys get to be the ones that are in the accelerated class next year. And I went up to the teacher and I said, so do you think I could cut it? And she said, well, I didn't call your name up, but if I chose you, do you think you would want to be part of that class? And I said, I don't know. I just want to know that I would have been chosen. <laughs> 
uh, I wouldn't have actually done the class. She said I could do it, and I said, I don't want to do it. I just want to know that I was chosen. But being cho- there's something special about being chosen in Christ, and Christ has chosen us. Notice the next one. You are adopted. And I have the verse references here so you can see where these ideas are coming from. But in Christ, you are adopted. One of the struggles that a lot of people have is they take their earthly fathers and then assume that God the Father is like their earthly father. And it makes them not like the concept of God being their father. Uh, we can't take our earthly sort of experiences and, and import them to, to, the, to God. But in the ancient world, there were a lot of orphans, like there is today. And whenever somebody was adopted, they would go from having absolutely nothing financially. They would go from rags to riches. Where now everything that their father and mother had belonged to them as their inheritance one day. In Christ, we've been adopted, every one of us. And by the way, think about that word adopted. If, if it was the word adoption there, the whole word. Uh, adoption is made up of two words. Ad and option. Do you want to know what adoption is? It's an option to add to your family. Is anybody obligated to adopt? Nobody has to do it. It's an ad option. And what God has chosen to do is He has taken the option of adding you to His family so now you'll inherit the world. You're going to inherit all the blessings that He has because of it. In Christ, you are adopted. In Christ also, you are redeemed. Uh, You've been bought out of slavery. Uh, God has taken you out of the, the pitiful circumstances that we put ourselves into. And He's redeemed us. He's bought us back. Reminds us of Hosea and Gomer and what Hosea did for her. In Christ, you've been redeemed. Notice this next one. In Christ, you are forgiven. Um, People talk about how if the government prints more and more money, what happens to the value of the dollar? It goes down. The English language, I've read before that the Hebrew language had 10,000 words, which means that like every word is so critical. In English, I don't know how many words we have, but it sort of like dilutes the meaning of some words. Uh, but, but the word forgiven is one of those words that just doesn't seem like it's ever going to lose its meaning. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. You think about all the times that you've said things that as soon as those words left your lips, you knew that it was going to crush the person that you just said it to. And you said it in anger, and you said it with harshness. Or you think about all the ways that you've used people or manipulated people or whatever. And God forgives us of those things. We're forgiven in Christ. Notice the next one. In chapter 2, verse 4, you are loved. We're going to come back to this at the end of the lesson. The text doesn't just say that you're loved. It says that you are greatly loved. Now, uh, one of the struggles that I had when I first became a Christian, which is about 11 years ago now, When I became a Christian, I didn't think that God would ever love me, really, until I was more mature and more perfect. You know what we learn about the audience of Ephesians, though? Is that in chapter 4, they still have to put on Christ more fully. In other words, they're not perfect yet. But the text still says that they're greatly loved in Christ. Have you ever wondered if anybody loves you? In Christ, you're greatly loved. Notice the next one. In Christ, you are made alive. Which means that you were dead. You were separated from true life. You were disconnected from it. 
But what Jesus has done for us, just like in Ezekiel 37 that we looked at yesterday, He's taken this valley of dry bones and caused them to be revived, to be rejuvenated all over again. God has given you new life. Spiritually, our souls are in a better situation now. And one day our bodies are going to be raised up. So in Christ, you are alive. Notice the next one, in Christ, you are saved. Now, uh, when I lived in California, people would talk about saving a beached whale. Uh, Dave Ramsey tells people how to save money. We use this word save or to save something in lots of different kinds of ways. What does the word save mean? It means to rescue something from some kind of danger. Let me suggest uh, that we need to think about what you think is the worst thing that can happen to you. If you think the worst thing that can happen to you is that you are single the rest of your life, your Savior will become a spouse. And your mission will become looking for a spouse. If you think the worst thing that can happen to you is that you're poor financially, your Savior will become money. And your mission will become getting money. And so, whatever you think the worst thing that can happen to you is, that's going to define for you what your Savior is going to be. Objectively, just like gravity is true, what's the worst thing that can happen to every human being? Eternal separation from God. We just have to get our sight set in that direction. And Jesus has saved us from the worst thing that could happen to anybody. Notice the next one. In Christ, you are God's workmanship. Uh, this is one of my favorite ones that Ephesians 1-3 through 3 shows us. I'm gonna, I, I don't know Greek and all that sort of thing, but uh, I'm going to Greekitize you for a second. The Greek word for workmanship, I, I, I think I'm pronouncing it the right way, but the Greek word for workmanship is poema. What English word sounds like that? Poema. Poem. What's a poem? A poem is a literary work of art. It's, it's art put to words. Do you know where else in the Bible this word for workmanship is used? In Romans 1.20, where it talks about how the pagans should be able to look at the, the things that God has created, the, crea- the creation. And they should be able to tell that there is a God that they need to give thanks to based on that. So, have you ever thought about our world? This world that we live in is a literary work of art because what caused it to exist? God's words did. I'm impressed with people who can make chairs and furniture and can like, do houses and do cool work like that. That's impressive. I'm impressed with the sunset. I think it's impressive when you look at a blue jay and you see the way that they do the things that blue jays do. That's all beautiful. The Bible says that it's God's workmanship. Do you know what else is God's workmanship? It's you and me. God's words are changing us into something more and more beautiful. I, when I lived in San Diego, there was some people in the church that were pretty artistic people. And they liked to, um, they liked to paint on canvas. And I asked them one time, I said, Did, when I, whenever you paint on canvas, do you start with a, a, a completely white, clean piece of canvas? Or do you start with one that's pretty messy? And they always start with one that's clean. Do you know what God has done? He's taken people that were not clean to begin with. He's taken a canvas that was messed up. And then he started to clean it off and make it beautiful. In Christ, you are God's workmanship. Notice the next one. In Christ, you are reconciled. 
All right, in this room, are there people of different ethnic backgrounds? Are there people that like different sports teams? I like the Philadelphia Eagles. Are there people that like Alabama and Auburn? Are there people that have all kinds of different socioeconomic backgrounds? All right, how many of us would just chill and hang out with, with each other if we weren't Christians? The thing that brings us together is the unity that we have in the Lord. So in Christ, we've all been reconciled. Notice, eleventhly, does that mean that the sermon's getting too long? Eleventhly, you've been made God's holy temple. All right. In the Old Testament, God took up residence in the temple. And if you lived in this time period, and a pagan traveled by... And they said, all right, my God is Molech, and he dwells over here. And they would say to the Israelite, where is your God dwell? And they would point over to the temple. And by the way, have you ever thought about where Israel was geographically? To the south was Egypt. To the northeast was Babylon. That means that in between, the roadway through for these travel routes and these trade routes would have been Israel. You know how when a church wants to find a new church building... They try to find a place that's like high traffic so people can see. God put Israel in a high traffic place so that when people traveled through, they could say, oh yeah, our God is over here. This is where he is, in that temple. In the new covenant, where has God chosen to to put his glory? In you and in me. So that when people look at the transformation that's taking place in our lives and they see the transformation that happens corporately in a local church, people look at that and go, there's something different about you guys. Now, let me just pause for a second. There's going to be a twelfth thing that God says about us. But look at all these things that God says about you if you're in Christ. Why would I ever seek the glory that comes from man when I can have this? Why would I ever be so petty and unloving to look for failures in other people when God is willing to lift me up in these kinds of ways? These are amazing words. My wife has changed my life. Before, I, before we started dating, before I got married, I was a completely different person. God has used her to help shape me and change who I am. Her affirmation and her love for me has changed my life. How much more should it be from the Lord if you never get a spouse, if you never have anybody that, that loves you, in the, we all have the Lord who gives us this kind of affirmation and changes us. Now, in a second, I'm going to show you the twelfth thing that we're called in Ephesians 1-3, through 3, but I want to read where it is in the context. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14-21. through uh, The first three chapters of Ephesians ends with a beautiful prayer that I think in a lot of ways sum up and wrap up everything that Paul's been writing about. Look at, starting in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Alright, in verse 19, Paul's prayer for them is that you will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And you ask yourself, how can you know something 
that surpasses knowledge. Well, you can know something on a couple of different levels. You can know something just intellectually, and then you can know it to such a depth that it changes the way that you feel and the way that you think about something. You notice that Paul here, he, he's in prison when he writes this. Imagine him chained up to a guard against a, a cold brick wall. And when he's having his amanuensis write this letter for him, he's speaking it out loud and this guy's writing it down. Paul's concern for the Ephesians while he's in prison is not, God, please help them to not be persecuted the way I'm being persecuted. His prayer is not, God, please help them to believe uh, that the story of Jonah really happened. I think it happened, by the way. But his prayer is, God, please help them know how much you love them. You want to know what one of my biggest struggles is since becoming a Christian? Did God create the world in six literal days? Yeah, that's really easy for me to believe that. I, God, if God is who he says he is in the Bible, he can do whatever he wants to. He can create the world in six days. He could, create it, he could have created it in a second if he wanted to. Could God do what he did with Jonah? Yeah, that's not hard for me to believe. Do you want to know what the hardest stuff for me to believe in the Bible is? That God loves me. That's the hardest stuff. Because I know my failures. I know my struggles. I know who I am. God knows it better than I do. And yet, He still loves me. Can you see why Paul is saying, God, please help them to know how much you love them. This is the hard stuff to believe. Why does it matter so much that we believe this? In verse 19, so that you'll be filled with the fullness of God. What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? If you take a cup and you fill it with the fullness of coffee, what's inside the cup of coffee? It's coffee. If you take a human being and you fill that person with the fullness of God, what's inside that person now? God is. You start to think the way He thinks. You act the way He acts. You react the way He reacts. Everything is filtered through. Everything has become who God is. God has taken up residence in your life. Um, in the book of Ephesians... What section of Ephesians do people typically know more about? Chapters 4 through 6 or 1 through 3? Well, 4 through 6, that's the armor of God. And that's the attitudes about unity and the seven things that we have to believe if we're going to be unified in Christ and putting off the old man and putting on the new man and walking as children of light. And that's the practical stuff. But do you know what Paul starts with? He starts with chapters 1 through 3. What do you need to know before you'll ever be filled with the fullness of God and live those practical things out? You need to know that God loves you. When you know that, you're strengthened. It's the last thing. I don't know if you've ever... Uh, if you, if you've str- some, some people are unfor- unfortunately grow up in families where mom and dad are never happy with the kid until the kid might be perfect. And then maybe mom and dad will be happy. Maybe you had a baseball coach or a t-ball coach that was never going to be happy with you until you just hit the ball the right way. And and then finally, okay, then he'll be happy. You know how God works? God says all of these things about you. If you're in Christ and you've, you've obeyed the commandment about being baptized into Christ and committing your life to Him, but before you're perfect, this is what He thinks about you. And then that those realities strengthen you to become perfect more mature in Christ. Do we sometimes flip that? God won't ever think these things about me until I'm perfect. You try living that kind of life and religion will become miserable to you because we're never going to make it. Unless we know 
that he loves us in these ways and he validates us in these ways. In verse 21 in this text, all of this is so that God would be glorified in the church. This is not to pat ourselves in the back. This is to be a reflection of the glory of the Lord that's changed us and made, me, made us into his workmanship. Uh, if you're here this morning and this, these, these blessings that God wants to speak into your life have not been spoken into your life, if you've not committed your life to Christ and you're not in Christ and you haven't been baptized into him, this is an opportunity to think about that. I would suggest that the value of a lesson like this We've, went, we've gone through a lot of stuff in this lesson. The value of a lesson like this is to write these things down, put it in your mirror, put it on an index card when you're driving, and just like you wash your hands to clean it off, you keep letting these things wash over your heart so that it cleanses it more and more and more, and it's a process. But this is what gives us the true affirmation that we need. This is the God that we get to be with one day. And this is what he thinks about us if we're in Christ. If there's anybody that has any need, this is an opportunity to get that help. Please don't leave here without coming forward or talking to somebody that you trust here before we leave, while we stand and while we sing.